Please turn with me uh, once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're uh, continuing to work our way through uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. And we're in this section um, where Paul is dealing with matters pertaining to, uh, to worship. Last uh, Sunday, we looked at the whole issue of head coverings and how they were being misused in the Corinthian church context, distorting what it means to be both male and female. Uh, weeks to come, we'll take a look at uh, spiritual gifts and their place and use in the context of the assembly of God's people. Uh, but today, we're, Paul comes back to the, the issue of the Lord's Supper. You might remember he spoke a little bit about communion back in chapter 10, but he returns here to the Lord's Supper once again because, as we've seen, things are a mess in Corinth. Now, looking, looking over the passage, uh, verses 17 through 34 of chapter 11, let me just give you a bird's-eye view, an outline of how we're going to approach it this morning. We're going to consider it under three headings uh, today, the second of which we'll actually consider as we come to uh, the communion table later this morning. But first of all, in verses 17 through 22, we're going to take a look at the, the distortion of the supper at Corinth. The, the Corinthians were acting in ways that distorted and obscured the meaning of the Lord's Supper with disastrous consequences. And so there's the distortion of the Lord's Supper. The second heading that we'll consider again as we come to the table is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, when things get distorted or bent out of shape, it's always good, isn't it, to go back to the basics, back to the fundamentals. That's what Paul does with the Corinthian Christians here. He takes them back to the, the Lord, uh, his institution of this meal uh, recorded for us in the gospel accounts. And then third, in verses 27 through 34, the reformation of the supper. So he doesn't just tell them what's wrong, but he gives them instructions for making it right. And he calls that for the reformation of the supper. And so we have here the distortion, the institution, and the reformation of the supper. Before we read God's word, let's, uh, let's stop and pray once again and ask for his help. Uh, Lord, this is uh, your word open before us and we need your help. Uh, we pray this morning that you would speak to us now in your word read and preached. Uh, Holy Spirit, you know our hearts. You know where we need teaching and instruction. You know where we need rebuke and correction. You know where we need training. And you know where we need encouragement and assurance. And so we pray that you would come this morning in power and apply your word to our hearts exactly where we need it. We ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 11, picking it up in verse 17, let's hear God's word. Paul writes, but in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, throughout church history, uh, the Lord's Supper has suffered from distortions. For example, the mistaken belief that the, the bread and the wine are somehow transformed into the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that mistaken belief has led to all sorts of distortions in terms of the church's thinking and practice. But a kind of knee-jerk reaction to that distortion has led, I think, to another. The belief that the Lord's Supper is, is nothing more than a time in which we focus our minds and seek to mentally recall and remember Christ's work for us in the distant past. And so one of the things I think church history teaches us about the Lord's Supper is, is that the church desperately needs to keep coming back to the Bible to ground its doctrine and practice and what the Bible actually says about the Lord's Supper. Because distortion and misunderstanding can easily set in. It didn't take very long, did it? Here we have a, a church founded by an apostle that has distorted the meaning and the practice of the Lord's Supper. As we'll see here, instead of it being a means of grace, a venue of blessing for the people of God. Instead, it has actually become a venue of divine discipline and judgment. 
And so I want to think, first of all, about the distortion of the supper that happened in Corinth. If you look back to verse 2 in chapter 11, Paul commended the Corinthians for remembering the tradition, the apostolic tradition that he had delivered to them. But here in verse 17, regarding this issue, he cannot commend them. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And again, at the end of verse 22, he asks, shall I commend you in this? No, I shall not. Something has gone seriously wrong when it comes to the Lord's Supper in the churches of Corinth. So wrong, in fact. Notice what Paul says. He, he cannot say anything good about the Corinthians' worship gatherings. Look at what he says in verse 17. I think it's a stinging rebuke. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better. In fact, it is for the worse. Think about that for a minute. While the church of Corinth was, was uh, messy and out of order, in a lot of other ways, they were doing exactly what the church was supposed to be doing when they gathered together. They came together on the first day of the week. Um, they prayed together. They heard God's word read and preached. They sang hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. They celebrated the sacraments. They did everything externally that the Lord required of them in the scriptures. And yet, Paul says that they were worse off at the end of the service than when they first arrived. Think about that. Worse off for having gone to church to worship God. That's what Paul is saying is happening when the Corinthians came together. And so I think we need to ask, what is it that has made the Corinthian worship service or any congregation's worship service for that matter a spiritual carcinogen? Right? One that needs to come with a, with a warning label that says, this worship service might be harmful to your soul. What is it about the church in Corinth? Well, look, look at verse 18. Here's what it involved. In the first place, Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. So a report had come to the Apostle Paul about divisions in the church. Paul, though, he's reluctant to give it full credence. I think that's what he's getting at. He says, I believe it in part. He's, he's reluctant to concede that Christian unity in the church seems to be tearing apart at the seams. In verses 18 and 19, he uses two Greek words to describe what is happening in the church. In, in the ESV, it's translated divisions and factions. The Greek words are schismata, schismata, and heresis. Now you can hear where we, you know, we get the English equivalents of schismatic and heretical. And Paul is saying that's what's going on. And he's disturbed by the whole thing. But he also says something I think worth noting about these divisions. If you take a look at verse 19... He says that actually there must be factions among you. He, he understands that the church must sometimes endure division 
and that God has a purpose for it. So Paul says there must be divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So I think we need to wrestle with that and and we need to understand that division is never something that we celebrate and Paul is actually writing, I think, to nip it in the bud in the Corinthian church. But when it erupts, as it will from time to time, we're reminded that God is, is still at work. He has a purpose for it. He's sifting the church, weeding out the true from the false. In his providence, the Lord allows the church and Christians to experience conflict and division so that true faith in Christ and true Christian character might be proven. See, nobody likes conflict and division. If you like conflict, frankly, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) And uh, we should talk if, if you like division. No one should like division and conflict. And yet, isn't it true that there are few things that reveal our hearts and characters and most deeply held beliefs more clearly than the way that we handle ourselves in the midst of conflict. And so here's a principle from from Paul's teaching. When the Lord ordains conflict to come, we need to remember that it's not meaningless, that he has reasons for it. It's hard, it's unpleasant, it's often heartbreaking, but it is not meaningless. He is growing and training and maturing his people. That's what God is doing in the midst of it. But we still need to ask, what is it that caused the divisions at Corinth in the first place? Right? Well, it looks like the custom in the Corinthian churches was to eat a meal together on Sunday when, when, they, when they came together. And somewhere during the course of that meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. But the way they were behaving was so problematic that the true meaning of the supper was being entirely obscured. It was being lost. And so Paul says to them in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Now that might be shocking to even think that's a possibility in a public gathering of a local church. But I think if you understand the the society in those days, the significance, we talked a little bit about dinner parties last week, but the significance of public meals and the kind of social hierarchies that were upheld, even in the way food is distributed uh, in these public meals. Uh, let Let me just give you one example here to show us how the Corinthian Christians were treating the Lord's Supper like any other Corinthian dinner party. That's the problem here. Okay? The Corinthian Christians, once again, looking more like the world in the church. And the Corinthian Christians treating uh, the Lord's Supper like any old Corinthian dinner party. Now, what did that look like in the Greco-Roman world? I'll give you one example. This is a first century example from Pliny the Younger, okay, civil magistrate. He, uh, he gives a description of a meal that he attended and with, a, with a wealthy host. And he writes these words. 
The best dishes were set in front of himself and a select few, and the cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. He even put the wine into little flasks divided into three categories. One lot was intended for himself and us, presumably you know, the best, most prestigious individuals. Another for his lesser friends, and a third lot for his and our former slaves. So you can see the social hierarchy reflected even in how the meal was distributed. And I think Paul is saying that the Corinthian Christians were behaving at their, their meals the same way other Corinthians did at theirs. The, the elite and wealthy, you know, prominent people of means would bring and enjoy the very best, some indulging to the point of excess and getting drunk. Now just imagine that in, in a church gathering. But Paul says, the poor, those of lesser means, perhaps household slaves, uh, those who would be considered lower in society, on the fringe of things, had very little or nothing, and they were going hungry and being humiliated while they watch their fellow uh, believers stuff their faces. And Paul, he's, he's appalled. You see what he says? What? Don't, don't you people have homes to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What can I even say to you? He's, he's at a loss. The supper, which is meant to express the communion and the fellowship of the body, had become so distorted that the meaning of the supper was altogether lost. That's why Paul says it's not even the Lord's Supper anymore when you come together. Now before we move on to think about the reformation of the supper, I think we should slow down and we should hear Paul's challenge and, and at, least, at least take an honest look at ourselves to see if in any way this challenge rings true in our lives in our hearts, in our church. We need to ask ourselves about our habits, our instinctive reaction when somebody whose background is not our background, somebody who, who doesn't move around in our circles, comes and sits down beside us in the church pew. Dear friend, what happens in your heart? Paul is saying here, you can come to church, or you can do everything right externally, you can be a part of a Reformed church that seeks to worship according to the Bible, and yet when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. See, it's quite possible for pride and a divisive spirit to contaminate our worship to the point where there is no longer any spiritual profit whatsoever. In fact... In fact, it damages souls. It hardens hearts. And so there's a terrible distortion of the supper. And so in verses uh, 23 and 26, which we'll come to uh, a little bit later, as I said, Paul takes them back to the institution of the supper. Okay, but let's jump ahead here to verses 27 through 34 to the reformation of the supper. Again, what's the problem? What's the distortion? The Corinthians were treating the Lord's Supper like any other Corinthian dinner party. The meaning of communing with Christ and expressing the fellowship of the saints 
was lost. And so they desperately needed reformation. So take a look at this section. Verse 27, he warns them not to eat and drink the supper in an unworthy manner, lest they be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now let's just slow down right there. Let's pause and reflect upon that verse for a minute, because I think this is often one of these misunderstood verses that has wreaked havoc in many, many Christian lives. It's caused all kinds of problems. So let me try to clarify and correct what I think is a misunderstanding. When Paul says we are not to eat and drink unworthily, he is not suggesting that you must somehow be morally qualified before coming to the table. To, To eat or drink unworthily doesn't mean that you need to reach some sort of subjectively determined standard of holiness in order to qualify yourself to come to the communion table. Remember what the bread and wine are, after all. What they represent. It's the good news of a Savior crucified for sinners, made visible. The bread and wine are gospel signs conveying and applying God's gracious promises. And so they are visible words communicating to us that Jesus Christ is the Savior of unworthy, needy, helpless sinners. And if that's the case as I think it is, we should also understand there is no way you and I could ever qualify ourselves for receiving such a gift. See, you need only know you're a a sinner in need of a Savior to have every warrant to come to Christ, first of all, with your need, and to find that He is the all-sufficient Savior. But we also need to understand that it's that same qualification or basis by which you come to the Lord's table. You're someone who has been confronted by by the gospel about about your sin and your need for grace. You know that in and of yourself, you are empty, helpless, guilty, and by grace, you've been joined with those people who share in common the conviction that Christ is your hope, that Christ is your pardon, that he's your righteousness, that he is the source of your strength, that he is your very life and future. And so you gather together at the start of the week to hear his word, to pray, to fellowship, and in the language of the book of Acts, to break bread as you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If that's you, dear brother, dear sister, you've got every right, every right to come to the Lord's table. And so please understand, as we just reflect upon this one little verse, you do not qualify yourself for the supper by attaining some level of holiness. The basis of our coming is the recognition of our need and knowing and believing that Christ alone is the one who is able to meet that need. And so when Paul talks about eating and drinking unworthily, he doesn't mean being good enough to come. Of course, we are to strive after godliness. We are to be, we're called to be holy as God is holy But how you are currently doing in your Christian life 
is not what gives you a right to come to the table. It is your need of Christ and the free grace of God and the promises of God in Christ that give you warrant to come. And so then what does Paul mean? What does he mean by eating and drinking unworthily? If that's not it, well, I actually think Paul tells us what it means. What does it mean to eat and drink unworthily? I think he tells us what it means in verse 29. This is what eating and drinking unworthily means. Not discerning the body of the Lord. The body of the Lord language here, it's not a reference to the church as the body of Christ. Paul will speak that way in other contexts. Here, it's referring to the flesh and blood of Jesus. The flesh and blood of the exalted, risen Christ. The same language that Paul used back in chapter 10 when he refers to the body of the Lord. He's talking about the flesh and blood of the risen Christ. Where he says we have, we have koinonia, we have fellowship, we have communion, participation in the body and blood when we eat and drink by faith. So here's what I think he's saying. We're not to eat and drink unworthily. That is, we are to discern the Lord's body. Meaning, we are to come to the supper understanding that although this is just bread, and although these are just cups of wine, when we eat and drink, believing the gospel, trusting in Christ, resting in Him, we get Jesus by faith. He meets with us. He communicates himself to us. He communes with us. He nourishes and strengthens us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is a means by which Christ meets sinners and encourages and comforts and strengthens their hearts. And if you understand that's what's really happening when we come together to the table by faith, well, it changes everything. You wouldn't dare treat the meal flippantly, would you? You don't, you don't allow it to become an occasion for, for factionalism and debauched dinner parties devolving into drunkenness. No, you come with reverence and joy and anticipation that as you eat and drink the bread and the cup in faith, Jesus meets you here to sustain you and strengthen you on your pilgrim journey. And so he says... We, in light of all of this, were to examine ourselves. But that's our responsibility. Now, once again, I think here's another verse that's often taken out of context and misused. In context, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, ask yourself, how are you coming? How are you approaching the Lord's Supper? What's in your mind? What are you thinking about? Here are these Corinthians who have turned the supper into an occasion for showing off and for some even getting drunk. They're not discerning the body and blood of the Lord. They're treating it lightly as an insignificant thing when the meal has been given to God's people as a means of grace. So dear friends, let's not make this same mistake. Examine yourself, Paul says. What are you, what are you thinking about communion? Now, maybe our problem isn't the Corinthian problem so much as it is we come with the assumption that, you know, this is just the same old routine. 
you know, we go through this, this religious routine every month. Lord's Supper, no big deal. Lord's Supper, I can, I can go without that. You see, we need to examine ourselves. We need to discern the Lord's body and come believing that something truly supernatural is taking place. That we are meeting with the risen Christ who feeds us with himself. Who comes to nurture his people by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so notice the warning in the light of this. If we don't discern the body and examine ourselves in this way. Paul says you eat and drink judgment on yourselves. Paul says, notice the language. You are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, a casual flippancy, a disregard for the seriousness and the solemnity and the weight and awesomeness of public worship in general and the Lord's Supper in particular is no small thing in the eyes of God. The Corinthians were disregarding communion. We could say they were abusing it. Their worship was a, was a mess. And here are the consequences. Paul says, that's why some of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Now just let that, let that sink in for a minute because of the way people were approaching the worship of God and the Lord's table, Christians in Corinth were getting sick and dying. Now I know there's a, you know, some people might, Take a look at a passage like Leviticus chapter 10. And I know the story of Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord struck them down. And I think sometimes we think, yeah, well, that's, that's old covenant stuff. Right? God doesn't take new covenant worship as seriously. I don't know about that. When we look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 11. But the question I want to ask us this morning is as you reflect upon what Paul is saying here is do you have any room for that kind of thing in your theology? Be, be honest. Do you believe God might judge a church like this for treating worship so flippantly? Does he, does he really take worship that seriously? Is how we observe the Lord's Supper such a big deal that he might send sickness, even death, into our midst as a rebuke for carelessness and division? Paul says that's what he did in Corinth. And that's why they needed urgent, immediate reformation. They were to wait for each other and eat and drink together not allowing the meal to become uh, you know, this opportunity to reflect these unequal dinner parties, which were so common in Corinth. They were to discern the body of Christ and examine their own attitudes toward worship. And then when they came together, it wouldn't be for judgment. It would be for the blessing of God's people. And so I think the question becomes, if God takes worship so seriously, how seriously do we take it? How do, you, how do you come to church? And how do you think about others when you come? 
Are there fault lines in our fellowship that we're just, you know, fine with? Is there any pride or elitism disrupting the unity and fellowship of God's people? Have we in any way allowed the patterns of this world to so distort the worship of the church that when we come together, we are no better in the end? In fact, we're worse off. We're to examine ourselves. Do we take the worship of God seriously? I think that's a hard, pressing, but urgent question in a day of casual Christianity. But how seriously, how seriously does God take his worship? Friends, don't you think, don't you think there's work for us to do here? You know, one of the things we believe as a, as a reformed congregation is, yes, we seek to be governed by God's word in our worship and in every aspect of life, but, but that comes with the accompanying conviction that we are always in need of more reformation, more sanctification, more conformity to Jesus' likeness. In the midst of all of this, as I want to end with this, there's a, there's a great reminder in the middle of this sobering instruction of what's on offer as we come together to worship the Lord. And we don't come to some tyrant who's just waiting to crush us. We come before the triune God who is eager and desires to bless his people, who wants to sustain and nourish and feed and equip us that we might finish the race that has been set out before us. You see, we desperately need then the, the resources that he provides. So we need to examine ourselves. And we need to repent where repentance is necessary. Forever having minimized the importance of the occasion of the gathering together of God's people. And let's run to Christ who is enough for us, for each and every one of us. With the assurance that he comes to us in our worship and in a moment at the Lord's table to pardon us, to cleanse us, to renew us, to nourish and sustain and strengthen us, that we might be kept to the very end. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift that you have given to us in him. We, we confess our sin in worship when our hearts are everywhere but here when we're indifferent to you and when we bring our pride and prejudices with us into the gathering of God's people. Lord, we pray that you would save us from these kind of problems that we see in Corinth. Spare us, Lord, from the rod of your discipline and reform us in any way that we are bent out of shape. Conform us to your will that you would be glorified when we gather together for worship and that we would be blessed and the better for it as we come together to worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.